So this is the fifth week, and every week I've been doing kind of like Turner movie, classic movies, where they, uh, they're showing Oscar films, but there's always somebody or something about the one film that relates to the next film, one of the stars, or the director. So in this sense, I'm carrying a theme forward from Philo, the guy that I talked about last week. Don't worry, there's enough here to understand what's going on. Okay, now, I don't know if you recognize that. Father knows best. That sure sounded like my house. So I grew up in a home with pretty strict gender boundaries. My dad worked long hours, and he was the enforcer. So I actually heard many, many times, wait till your father gets home. And I was pretty much terrified of dad. All right, mom taught piano, so it wasn't totally traditional. She did uh, work, she worked, but she worked inside the home. And I didn't get dinner until probably 7 o'clock at night because she was taught piano all afternoon. But she cooked and she cleaned, and I don't know, she might have even worn pearls while she was doing it sometimes. And then my older sister lorded over me and worried about boys and hair. So it was a pretty typical household. Except for me, as I was admitting to you, I like to shop and wear shoes, and I wasn't interested in sports. <coughs> and I was interested in music. So a lot of the gender uh, restrictions didn't make any sense to me. I don't feel bound by them particularly now. But at the time when I'm a, I'm a kid and I'm not good at sports, that seemed like a big disaster. Okay, so what I, I want to talk about an aspect of the mythos, and this is probably the most significant, prevalent, powerful, and natural phenomenon of the mythos that we live in. And the mythos, as I started off the series talking about, are the stories and the words and the images we use to fit the facts of the world with ourselves, with our reality, our experience. And most often, when you live inside of a particular time, you're not aware of the mythos of your time. You think people believed in myths in the past, but you don't see how these stories are structuring the present. The Christian faith emerged within a gendered mythos, of course. We still live within a gendered mythos. And it's theology and philosophy adapted to and shaped those mythos. Then and now, believers struggle with how gender and theology can work positively together. And, you know, we, we, there's... Uh, no hiding the fact that I don't think the church dealt very well with the issue of gender historically um, in terms of women's roles, men's roles. We're still struggling with those issues. But what I want to look at particularly uh, are the figures of Sophia and Shekinah. Shekinah will come much later, uh, but you'll see that. And of course, the connection here, the star of the movie last week was uh, Philo, so I'm continuing. One of the other things the fellow talked about was Sophia. Anybody know what Sophia means? Wisdom, wisdom yes. So follow drew on the figure of wisdom from Judaism's own intermediary theology. In some biblical and extra-biblical writings, wisdom, a personified aspect of God, was an agent of creation and salvation preexistent with God in heaven. Philo occasionally makes her the mother of the Logos. But such language seems to be symbolic only with Philo. Now here he says, the Logos is the son of God and wisdom. 
But God is the Father, who is as well the Father of all things, and for Mother Wisdom, through whom all things came into Genesis. So here he's being figurative, but of course we saw how the early church took what he was speaking of as figurative and applied these ideas to Christ. And you'll see they'll do the same thing. They'll apply the Logos to Christ, but also the idea of the Sophia. And again, we're looking at Hebrews, and as you noted, Apollo, uh, Apollos, connection with possible writing of Hebrews. Hebrews is definitely seen to have been written in Alexandria. So the Hebrew uh, Bible wisdom was personified as coming to earth, although there was never any thought of being physically incarnated. Proverbs says, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. And here, uh, when I teach the Bible is lit, we talk about the songs of wisdom. By the gate, wisdom calls aloud. Men, it is to you I call. I am wisdom. I bestow shrewdness and show the way to knowledge and prudence. The Lord created me the beginning of his works. When he set the heavens in their place, I was there. I was at the Lord's side each day. Happy is the man who keeps my ways. So from this early date, you can see that wisdom is seen as a separate figure that is there at creation. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible used by early Christians, another thing I'm hoping that you're aware of is that early Christians had different versions of the Bible than the ones that we do now. Some of them, of course, didn't have a Bible at all, like Paul, because it was yet to be written. <coughs> but when it was pulled together, it pulled together differently in different places, and the different traditions reflect that. The Catholics have different books, uh, and the Eastern Orthodox has, and, and Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox have different books that they consider part of the New Testament than the Protestant, but the Protestants, of course, came much, much later. All right. The Greek version of the Hebrew Bible used by early Christians. The early Christians did not use the Hebrew Bible because most of them didn't know Hebrew. They knew Greek, and they read the Greek Bible. Uh, so they, there's a book in that that the early Christians would refer to called Baruch. And it gives a line, and it originally meant the Torah, but this is what it says in Baruch. Thereupon wisdom appeared on earth and lived among men. Okay, so deeply planted in Proverbs and then this book from a later period when they're putting the Old Testament together both reflect this idea that wisdom could be a bodily person. All right, along comes a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which is in some versions of the Old Testament. The epistle to the Hebrews in a profusion of platonic image declares the Son to be the heir to the whole universe, and through him he created all orders of existence. The Son, who is the effulgence of God's splendor and the stamp of God's very being, sustains the universe by his word of power. Now, we'll see the quote later that this comes from, or it's very close to, from Wisdom of Solomon. It's very close to a passage, the most important non-Philonic document to survive. Okay, so basically... What I'm not saying here is that Philo didn't get his ideas from nowhere. He got his ideas from some of this intertestamental literature, from the wisdom of Solomon, from Baruch, and from Proverbs, this idea of the personification of Sophia. 
And of course, they would have called her Sophia because it's a Greek Bible. It's not a Hebrew word. All right, so it's very close to um, a document written in Alexandria. There's the Alexandria connection again. Wisdom of Solomon was written there as well. Wisdom of Solomon included the Apocrypha section, most Old Testaments. The unknown writer of this work came at the end of a long line of Jewish thinking about the figure of divine wisdom. So what does it say? Well, I'm going to kind of work up to it. Judaism had its own intermediary figure going back centuries, certainly as old as Plato. For the Jews, God never became quite so inaccessible, but among the scribes of the period following the exile, God was presented as making himself known and working in the world through what they called wisdom. But it was not the Son of God that we would see later with the New Testament. The figure of wisdom was a female, and the grammatical gender of the Hebrew word chokhmah is feminine. All right, so wisdom, chokhmah, is personified in Proverbs not only as a woman, but pre-existent entity, as we already saw in another slide. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his ways, says Lady Wisdom, before his works of old. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. There's also a hint of something we'll see as we go along, that perhaps um, she is the wife of God, which is, I know, an idea that sounds strange, but you can see that the language kind of reflects that. It was through wisdom that Yahweh founded the earth. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. She offers reward to all who seek there. And in Proverbs it says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. In the Apocrypha, Lady Wisdom is identified with the Torah or biblical law, Sirach and Baruch. In the New Testament, the pre-existing word, Greek logos, at the beginning of the Gospel of John is reminiscent of wisdom as well. So, 1 Corinthians one twenty-four, Paul calls Christ Theosophia, the wisdom of God. Now, an interesting little path to go down <laughs> is Sophia, a remnant of a female consort for God. We have to remember that the mythos of the whole world at the time, everything that surrounded Hebrew culture, God was male and female. And there, there were temples to goddesses and temples to gods. And that, of course, as we all know, they intermarried until the um, god figures usually had a wife or the, the, the mother figures usually had a husband. Sometimes they had a son. In the Egyptian model, Isis and Osiris had the son Horus. So this was very, very common in the ancient world. So it's possible in the pre-exilic time, meaning the time before they were exiled to Babylon, that there was a female consort to Yahweh worshipped along with Yahweh in Israel. Wisdom took on a status and a personality of her own. Some scholars claim it's just a poetic thing, but this author, Helma Ringgren, says that wisdom was not an abstraction but a concrete being self-existent beside God. All right, so there's archaeological evidence at least some ancient Hebrews perceive Yahweh as having a consort or female companion. This could be the origin of the mysterious Lady Wisdom, and we'll see 
what's going on with that. All right. At the time, the names of the goddess figure in, in the mythos of surrounding culture, the Canaanites and the Babylonians, Sumerians, Babylonians, uh, worshipped Ishtar. She was called Ashira by the Canaanites. And they considered her the consort of El. And as you know from other weeks, El was the name for God used by the northern kingdom. And it was a common name that's just translated as God. In the Bible, her name often appears as Harashira, meaning the Ashira. In such instances, the reference is not to the goddess, but to a symbol of her, an object, an Ashiram. And you probably remember stories where the Ashiram, I think, um, it's a pole. It's a sacred pole, a tree, or a group of trees. At Israel, sanctuaries are high places. So we have indication historically that these high places included these Asherah poles as well as um, altars to Yahweh. The erecting of Asherah was among the evil deeds, or quote evil deeds, of Ahab and Manasseh. And a regular tour of right kings like Hezekiah and Josiah to get rid of them. The presence of the Asherah are a symbol in places where Yahweh, the biblical god of the Hebrews, was worshipped, raises the question whether the Canaanite goddess was considered a consort to Yahweh. They found some ancient descriptions. All right. And they say, well, they're actually graffiti. <laughs> I bless you by Yahweh of Samaria and by his Asherah. So you could see, in the, at least in the northern kingdom. And I bless you by Yahweh of Taman and by his Asherah. Could mean that he, he was thought of. Okay. So that idea probably didn't come out of nowhere. And, and what we see over time is that the Orthodox faith has to come to grips with this mythos that surrounds them, which is if you have a faith that's completely patriarchal based in a father, even though we say now and we talk about that that God figure is without sex, he's called a he consistently all the way through the Bible. So you have a patriarchal religion where do women fit in? And where does this goddess figure fit in? So you can see orthodoxy is trying to figure out some ways to deal with this pressure from the rest of the world to have two figures. By the time we get to the Wisdom of Solomon, the book that I was talking about a minute ago, you can see that historically that's the way it went at first. Wisdom of Solomon just blends the idea of wisdom with the Logos. Wisdom is now the divine power active in the world, the spirit that pervades and governs all things. She's the Logos without the name. She's God's throne partner. Step away from Christ sitting at the right hand of God, and she's preexistent. So this is the actual quote that the, the passage in Hebrews reflects from the wisdom of Solomon. She rises from the power of God, a pure effulgence, affluence of the glory of the Almighty. She is the brightness that streams from everlasting light, the flawless mirror of the active power of God and the image of his goodness. She spans the world in power from end to end and orders all things benignly. So basically, the wisdom of Solomon was trying to create a space for the feminine within a mostly patriarchal religion and identifying the feminine as the power of creation. In the book, 
Solomon, who's, it's written in the name of Solomon. So the speaker says, her I loved and I sought after for my youth. I sought to take her for my bride and was enamored of her beauty. Entering my house, I shall take my repose beside her. These different places in the same chapter. For association with her involves no bitterness and living with her no grief, but rather joy and gladness. That immortality lies in kinship with wisdom, great delight in love of her, the unfailing riches in the work of her hands. And in associating with her, there is prudence and fair renown in sharing her discourses. I went about seeking to take her for my own. So all of this plants the seeds for Philo's idea of blending the Sophia and the Logos. Yeah. But I don't think people totally took it that way. Yes. It's a personification. What I'm saying is, though, there's indication that there was a real tension in Israel to have a female figure. And some Israelites probably worship both Yahweh and Asherah. We, we actually, I'm going to show you some verses that just pff, confirm that totally in, Jer- yeah. in Jeremiah. Okay, and in Jeremiah, the people say this has been going on for generations on generations. They're they're saying this is going on. What we see in the wisdom of Solomon is personification, and I think that's an attempt to deal with the feminine in a different way and to pull people away from the Asherah to at least to see it as a personification. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Wisdom of Solomon is, is, a, is an apocryphal book, yes. It wasn't included in the Old Testament. Okay, just because something wasn't included in the Old Testament doesn't mean that New Testament writers and Philo, they read it. And at the time, no one had decided that it was or was not in the canon. There were New Testament books also that are, um, I, think, um, I think the Gospel of James, no, Jude, quotes from Enoch, which is not in the, Old Te- the official Old Testament. But at the time, they hadn't established the canon of the Old Testament. Yeah. that it upset a few of the conservative Presbyterians around. But it's interesting, when you talk about what was going on a couple thousand years ago, it isn't just then that this issue, I mean, we're living it now still, but it turned out to be much milder than we all thought it might be at the time. We were all ready for something revolutionary, and Uh there was never really a revolution 
it became kind of an accepted thing. Uh, but we would have all been blessed if we'd have had your teaching before that came around because we would have been better prepared to <laughs> accept it. <laughs> it makes a whole lot more sense, and that's why I'm talking about this today. All of these issues make more sense if you've seen that the Jews and Christians have both been trying to deal with this issue for their whole existence. Mm -hmm. And that um, there seems something built into us because we live in a gendered world and of males and females that it seems a little unnatural to have just one figure that's a male and, and no real place in the theology for women and in, uh, in the feminine archetype of God. Yeah. And except it's addressed in Genesis 1, verse 27, which I've looked at for the majority of my life and said, how can these people be so stupid as to miss this verse? So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, which very clearly says that God's image is yes. male and female. And guess so who where's put the that, confusion? Guess who put that in the Bible? The priestly redactors. That's one of the last stories that was included in the Bible, and they come from a time period that's struggling with this. And they came up with that answer, which is exactly contradicted in the story of Adam and Eve. So that's the problem. I guess if Adam and Eve wasn't there, then we Why would is Adam and Eve a problem to that? Because it's, Eve is created second to be a helpmeet. So they're completely different descriptions of the, of the creation. The fact that God is male and female doesn't really make any difference in the fact that God created us with specific purposes in mind. I mean, no. it, it just means that we're all included in yeah. our godly image, which is the important part, right? I don't want to get lost in that. I, okay. But I do, uh, your point is valid, and I actually talked about that earlier and actually in other talks that I've talked about the idea of that there are these different ideas and the one that wins out though is the patriarchal mythos because it is much stronger in the Hebrew culture otherwise why would we be talking about that now and why would we be reminding people that that verse is there it's not the first time the verses like that got ignored Paul also I actually did a talk on this in the last series directly on gender and Paul also says in Christ there is no male or female but at other times he says women should be silent in church and it's really hard to put all those things together. To me, one of them was like Paul, a revelation. And to me, the other is more like Paul, the culture, you know, mythos. Same thing going on here. I think there's a struggle. Otherwise, it would have fared a lot better for women historically than it did. All right, personified wisdom also represents part of the widespread tendency in Near Eastern religions to strip off certain aspects of a deity and turn them into divine figures. They began life as qualities of a higher God, gradually said, thought about them. They're separated, and they're called hypostasis, which is when the personification becomes, to some people, an object of worship. There you go. Well, you know, the whole Greek pantheon, or not all the, the pantheons, would be, 
you know, she's the goddess of love, this is the goddess of, this is the god of war. It's, you know, it's like you start with the idea of one and then all the attributes become gods. That's a hypothesis. All right. Also, what could be happening here behind the scenes is that um, there's a resistance towards Ishtar. Wisdom may have been pushed into the spotlight by a scribal establishment, the priestly caste, which wanted to counter the fascination for the Phoenician goddess Ishtar. Ishtar, that's where we get the word star. She was, she was the queen of heaven, Ishtar. Easter is, another, is her Germanic name. That's Astarte. Yeah, Easter, <laughs> still here. <laughs> Erda, she was called Erda in some places, Mother Earth. Yeah. All right, like Sophia, Ishtar also stood by the gate of her temple, but she was saying, come in and, you know, have sex. One way to undercut the intruder's appeal was to borrow her features and turn them into something that could be approved and controlled. All right, so Ishtar, we'll talk about her for a second. The worship of Ishtar was popular in Judah and the city of Jerusalem before its destruction in 586 B.C. It was practiced by kings, princes, and people in general. And you know the Deuteronomists were not happy about that. It appears she was worshipped in private family shrines. The texts indicate that fathers, mothers, and children were involved in her cult. These are all based in passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah historically is right on that period when, they, when the temple is destroyed and they're taken into captivity. And Jeremiah is, taken, uh, is offered a chance to escape to Egypt. Her worship is, is well accepted by the people. So let's look directly at Jeremiah. This is the queen of heaven. This was Ishtar. This is a very interesting passage. Talk about mythos. When all the men knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven, and we'll pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our ancestors, our kings, our officials did in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. Huh. At that time, we had plenty of food. We were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing. We have been perishing by sword of famine. And the women added, when we burn incense to the queen of heaven, and this is very important, one of the reasons that women were very attracted to the Ishtar cult was they had a role, they had a place. There was not a place for them in Judaism other than to be the wife of a man. There was not really a place for them. And it, with Ishtar, they could serve as priestesses, and they had functions, they had their own reflection in their goddess, and so it was very common. Did not our husbands know we were making cakes, impressed with her image, and pouring out drink offerings to her? So Jeremiah offers us a window not only into the time period, but that in both cases, he's saying that they didn't just see their activity as something new, that it was something that had gone on for generations. Sort of the hidden story of the Bible. So how does all this add up? <laughs> All right, let's back to the wisdom of Solomon. 
It shows us the time was right for the Logos and wisdom to make a journey to the world. The earlier lady wisdom of Proverbs who stood by the gate and called is undoubtedly speaking metaphorically in a spiritual sense, yes, personification, for the period immediately after the exile was too early to envision a concept of incarnation. But by the turn of the era, both, both Jews and Greeks, the need for a transcendent God to send his representative, his revealer, was acutely felt. So the more society falls apart, the more they feel this need for Sophia, for the Logos. Galatians 4. Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, in Greek, that is when time was pregnant. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoption as son. And it's interesting that he put also that phrase, born of woman. So much of the world was unfathomable. Wars and strife and evil spirits seemed to be winning. Remember, we have to remember that Jerusalem had been captured by foreign powers, had been destroyed more than one, you know, once, and it was you know, headed for destruction again. Humanity desperately looked for aid, direction, and outright salvation, and this need is reflected in lines from Wisdom of Solomon. Here's what the book says. Send wisdom forth from the holy heavens, from thy glorious throne, bid her come down, so that she may labor at my side, and I may learn what pleases you. So, in the New Testament, the preexistent word, Greek logos, at the beginning of the Gospel of John is reminiscent of wisdom. The language is very similar to the language that we saw in Proverbs and in the wisdom of Solomon. And Paul calls Christ the wisdom of God, Theosophia. Paul elaborates on this. Paul himself tells us that Christ is the very image of God. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he says, For there, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all, all things come, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ, from whom all things came to be, and we through him. This is the language both of the Logos that we saw in Philo and in Wisdom of Solomon, and the language of Sophia. Paul and other early writers are speaking of Christ in exactly the same language as we find in the broader philosophical world reflecting their mythos, both Greek and Jewish. Their idea of the spiritual son has absorbed both the features and the roles of the Logos and personified wisdom. Paul is drawing on prominent ideas of his day and the deeper heritage that lay behind them. So there we see it, it wasn't just Philo. He wasn't just bringing it out of nowhere. He was looking back to Proverbs and the wisdom of Solomon and his teaching in Greek philosophy and adding it all together. All right. It sounds like I'm going to stop here, but I'm not. <laughs> but I figured that I ought to stop and summarize because a lot of you have that look on your face like, what just happened? All right. This is what I think I'm trying to say. <laughs> In all the known religions of the ancient world, there were both male and female gods who often married. And we still see this in Hinduism and, and other cultures even today. The power of creation was seen as both masculine and feminine. And we see that in that, in that later story version of, the, of male and female, he created them. To 
Despite the Jewish patriarchal God in Hebrew thought, the idea of the feminine took at least four forms. The Asherah, the consort of El, so some people just made it literal. Wisdom personified in Proverbs. Wisdom apostatized. Apostatized. Wow. It's too early to say that word. Meaning that it's sort of a combination to where she is seen as this figure of creation and she's like the Logos and it's a spiritual being that's more than just a personification. And then Philo takes that and blends it with the Logos. And then the New Testament adapted the latter point of view, the blend of the Logos and the wisdom when Paul calls Jesus Theosophia. Okay. That's a summary. But there's more to come. You can just look online. It's right there. And it, if you buy the uh, a Bible with the Apocrypha, it's, it's in there. Published is a weird word, but well, <laughs> it was uh, written in the intertestamental period sometime in Alexandria, somewhere in that three to, you know, 300s to maybe the hundreds. B.C. Right, because it's a Jewish book. But we have to also remember when the, when the canon wasn't made up yet, you know, Christians read the wisdom of Solomon as a, as a divine book. They, they didn't separate books as we do now. This is apocryphal and this is not, the church had not made those calls yet. Okay. So, the wisdom of Solomon? Good question. So I don't, I don't think it, I think just time, I, it just wasn't the right time, maybe there wasn't the right theology in that it seemed to take the personification and make it more into a real figure. I'm not, I'm not sure. I it's in the Catholic Bible. Right. That's another lecture series. Yeah. And actually, I went into a little bit of that, and it was far more political <laughs> than it was, I think. I mean, I think honest people really believed, but there were different beliefs, and people who called themselves Christians were now heretics, and other people, you know what I'm saying? The, the decision for orthodoxy was a little more questionable than, than you would think. But that's a different matter. All right, so let's see what happened historically. How did they keep this together? They didn't keep the wisdom of Solomon in necessarily in the Old Testament, but they did come up with answers to this question. What do we do with the archetype of the feminine? What do we do with the idea of the goddess? As I said, most religions in the Middle East had father, mother, and son trinity. The blending of Sophia and Logos and the figure of Christ kept the Trinity patriarchal. There were arguments in the early church as to whether or not the, the Holy Spirit was a feminine force, but that didn't really catch on. 
It's a very patriarchal culture, and they resisted that. All right, so Christians and Jews alike both sought the feminine, and they looked, of course, to Mary, Sophia, and a concept already in the Old Testament called Shekinah. All right, so in Jewish mysticism, later to be known as the Kabbalah, that made the news a lot when Madonna became a Kabbalist, or Kabbalist, the feminine was identified as Shekinah, the glory of God. In Christian mythicism, in the East, she became the figure of Hagia Sophia. Um, it really kind of, it means holy, self, holy wisdom. So again, they kind of kept something between a personification and a, and a real uh, power, a real being. And then Sophia's role as intercessor was absorbed by Mary. All right, so in the Hebrew tradition, Shekinah. The majestic presence or manifestation of God was descended to dwell among men, the Shekinah. Memra, now interesting, look at what's happening here in terms of everything we've been talking about. Whenever a Jew would read the Old Testament, well, the, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, when they came to God's name, they couldn't say God's name. So they would say one of these two things. Memra, word, logos, or they would say kabod, glory. So they use that in the, in the place of the name of God, but it's interesting, the glory gets associated with Sophia, logos, with the word. The word itself is taken from passages that speak of God dwelling either in a tabernacle or among the people of Israel. So I threw all these in <laughs> I'm not going down that road, but I threw these in as reference points if you want to look at the times. So whenever it is said that God dwells, this is Shekinah. Okay, if we've learned anything so far, though, if anything appears as something that's always there, it could get personified and it could become a being kind of on its own. The glory of God can become a thing. And the and the Christian tradition, since Shekinah is light, those passages of the Apocrypha and New Testament which mention radiance in which the Greek text reads doxa, which means light, but it came to mean uh, it's, it, 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 it takes off into doxology and doctrine, teaching, referred to the Shekinah, there being no other Greek equivalent for the word. Interesting, the Greeks had no word for it because it didn't exist to them. According to Luke 2, 9, the glory of the Lord, doxa kyrio, shone around them. And then you can see it also in Second Peter, Ephesians, Corinthians. It's supposed that 1 John 14 or Revelation 21, 3, the words skenun and skene were expressly selected as implying the Shekinah. The idea that God dwells in man and that man is his temple is merely a more realistic conception of the resting of Shekinah on man. So when Paul is talking about us being the temple, he's saying, you're the Shekinah. The Shekinah lives in you. The glory of God. The light of God. In the Kabbalah, anybody know anything about Kabbalah? I know when Madonna became a Kabbalist, I was kind of curious. And then I started reading about it and I thought, that's just a whole world of stuff to learn. I don't have time for this. 
I don't know, somebody asked me to do a, a series on it, maybe. <laughs> I'll be more motivated. All right, so Shekinah reflects the Greek concept of Sophia found in Proverbs, Wisdom, Solomon, Shun. Okay. Now, this is all based in a lot of he- in Hebrew traditions that date way back. But let me just say that in every faith, there are kind of what in Hinduism they call the right and the left hand. They, there usually is a mystical path and a more, not worldly path, but you know what I'm saying. Not mystical. <laughs> Maybe a literal path. And the church pretty much stays safely on the literal side and then uh, decides whether the mystics are crazy or not, right? So some of them get respected, like St. Francis and then Joan of Arc. Uh, some people didn't know what to do. But there's always a mystic tradition in all things. In Islam, it's the Sufis, uh, it's the Kabbalists in Judaism, and Christians just call them mystics or Christian mystics. So, before the beginning was the Ensof, the source of all things. Ensof was everything and nothing, potential, nothing manifested. There was no place that the Ensof is not found, it is infinite. In order to begin the process of creation, potential to become actual, the insolve had to first withdraw from itself and create a tiny vacuum. <laughs> this withdrawal or contraction is called samitsum in the Kabbalah. Through this, a singular point, the primordial vessel was created. And into this vessel, the essence of insolve could flow and be concentrated to such a degree that creation birth forced in a big bang. <laughs> <laughs> really it's only a couple slides. So hang on. In this vessel into which the concentration of God flows, the Shekinah, the feminine womb, the birth canal of creation. You know there are thousands of people that believe this, so maybe we shouldn't just laugh. All right. Well, that's true. We don't want to go down that political road right now. All right, on this tree of life, there are three pillars. The pillar of force, the pillar of form, and the pillar of balance. The pillar of force is traditionally seen as the masculine energy, the chokhmah, the divine southern soul at its top. That would be over here. The pillar of form, on the other hand, is usually described as feminine energy, the benah, the divine mother Luna. It is the Shekinah that is described the Kabbalist to be the middle pillar pillar of the balance, interestingly enough, and unites the opposites, just as the soul allows opposites of the body of spirit to unite. So the Shekinah plays this role for us. Indeed, the Shekinah is the soul of man. So they go literal with the idea that Paul said the Shekinah lives in us, we're the temple. Leonard Nemo wrote a very controversial book called Shekinah. Uh, he, whom he represented as a softer, empathetic, feminine counterpart to God who could argue for humanity's sake, comfort the poor and sick, and stand in for the mother of Israel. Sounds pretty familiar for Christians in the figure of Mary. Nimoy's rabbi explained to him that the entry of Shekinah into the sanctuary to bless the congregation could cast a fatally blinding light. Such a powerful memory inspired the actor photographer to exploit the feminine aspect of God in human form with a very controversial book. But if you ever run into it, now you know. All right, so in Christian traditions, and I'm only going to stick with Orthodox here. I could go down some unorthodox or non-Orthodox views. In Roman Catholic tradition, the feminine aspect of God is identified with Jesus' mother, who was elevated in four edicts. 
The title Mother of God was given at 431 in the Council of Ephesus. So that's been around for a long time. Some of the other ones I don't know if you know are very recent. Immaculate Conception was established in 1854. The perpetual virginity of Mary after the 7th century. And the assumption of Mary, meaning that she didn't die, she was taken into heaven. Pope Pius Twelfth established that in 1950. Again, though, what we're seeing is the church trying to deal with this idea of the feminine. The Catholic Encyclopedia states, In Mary's fiat of faith, she receives salvation for all. Mary's mediatorship, there she is, that's just Sophia, is to be understood on the level of solidarity with mankind, which is in need of redemption. The function of Mary in salvation determines her relation to the church. Mary is the mother of the church. Under this more individualistic aspect, since she's effectively concerned for the salvation of each individual. One can trace Sophia traditions directly to Mariology. Uh, she does. In Eastern traditions, she's Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. Who, the Eastern traditions kept her pretty much a real being of creation, sort of not equal to the, the divine logos in Jesus, but kept, didn't uh, just make her part of Jesus as the divine logos. In the mystical theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church, wisdom is understood as the divine logos, became incarnated Jesus Christ. But you can see from these icons she was kept as sort of a separate figure, and that's probably one of the most famous churches in the world, the Hagia Sophia. Unfortunately, it's no longer a church. It was created in the Byzantine period and then uh, created, changed to a mosque in 1453, and now it's a museum. All right, there is a modern online group trying to deal with this called Crystal Sophia. This is what they say on their website. The name Christa Sophia includes both the masculine and feminine image of the divine. Sophia is the Greek name for the feminine figure of divine wisdom in ancient Judaism. They're right there. Many early Christians viewed the Christ as both the word Logos and the wisdom Sophia of God. Including both Christ and Sophia in the name Christ Sophia restores the divine feminine in Christianity. They have a publishing house that's there symbol. The Sophia that has always been acknowledged by esoteric Christianity is the key to unlock the Christian wisdom that is needed for our time. Recognizing the sacred feminine within the Christian tradition leads to a renewed vision of the sacredness of the natural world and the value of mystical experience. All right, so where am I going with all this? As you can see, we looked through the whole history. The desire for an expression of the feminine in Hebrew thought is there from its earlier history. And at first, it's in a mixed devotion to Ishtar and Asherah. In a similar manner, the idea of personified Sophia is established in the book of Proverbs. The desire for a liberator and the desire for a feminine mediator finds its fullest expression in the wisdom of Solomon and Philo. The Jewish Kabbalah continues to view Sophia Shekinah as a divine figure. The New Testament writers mix the imagery of Logos with Sophia in the figure of Christ. The ancient church found ways to incorporate the feminine into orthodox interpretations, orthodox Christian theology. Roman Catholics, in the veneration of Mary, 
Eastern Orthodox in the veneration of the Hagia Sophia. And groups like Christus Sophia seek to find expression for the feminine in Christian belief. And interestingly enough, we can trace all of it back to Alexandria. All right, so, conclusion here. We're born into a gendered world, and it seems natural to desire both masculine and feminine archetypes. I, what I didn't talk about too much before is that, you know, as a kid, I kind of grew up with this same kind of archetype, that when I wanted rules, it would be my father. When I wanted wisdom, where did I go? My mother. I remember when I was a little kid, um, you know, we had our family dinners were, of course, very patriarchal, and all the women were out with aprons on making the food and, and washing dishes and whatever, and the men were watching games. And I remember sitting out with the men watching the games, and as you might recall, I had no use for sports. This made no sense to me. And it just seemed like the men were so boring. <laughs> I was just like, well, you know, I was at work the other day, and I was like, oh, God. And so where would I go? I would go to the kitchen, where my great aunt would always be like, honey, because she was from the South. She hugged me under her apron, and she always would give me cookies and stuff, and I loved it in there. But I remember making this observation, and I think that's part of what we're dealing with here, is that I thought, the men don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, the women were in there talking about real things, right? They were talking about what the family was doing, you know, and they, they knew about each child, what they were doing, how they were doing in school, everything else. The men are talking about, well, I'll think he can throw it, you know? And you're like, really? Intercepted pass, yeah. And it just seemed to me so obvious where the wisdom was. That the, that the women had the wisdom. So to me, this is a very real issue. And I don't think the church has, it's tried to deal with it, you know, and there, but there's more to do with. <laughs> In terms, I just think it's built into us that we need feminine as well as masculine figures in our lives. We need that. So, but the patriarchal God of the Old Testament, despite some passages that are very hopeful, it still remained a very patriarchal religion. All you have to do is look at Roman Catholicism and their refusal to do some of the things Presbyterians have done, say we're still not ready for some of this. So I'm just asking a question this time instead of concluding anything. It's to say how can the church rhetorically, how can it speak to these issues of mythos and logos in a way that responds to our need for the feminine archetype? There you go. That's true. I can understand the discussion over the ages, but I've resulted in the fact, remember, that there was no beginning to time, time, and there was no beginning to God. He is eternal. God is just that power. Neither father or mother, it, God is that eternal power that leads us. And uh, I just, I know you can't say, we can't refer to it just as it. 
we, we refer to it as father. Mm -hmm. Catholics can refer to it as mother. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, I can't say it, but I can say God, eternal God, that power yes. that has always existed, has always been there. I know uh, that in a Presbyterian church was one of the first times I saw an attempt to, they just took all the he's out and just said God every time. It can be a little annoying as a listener, but I understand why you're doing it. And um, changing what is said for the name of God is not a, it's a very traditional practice. So I don't see that it was a strange thing to do. I, a lot of people have made them uncomfortable, but if you think about it, right, the, there is, there's no pronoun. Yeah. So you could just say, God's too great for that. And then we don't have to say the he and we're, we're done with the problem. I also, you know, because I'm a linguist, I know that we can say all we want to about that he works as a pronoun for everybody. But it doesn't because if you picture a sentence, if I just say what he thinks, you don't picture an androgynous being. You, you know what I'm saying? Language is very powerful. So I believe if we change just the way we speak about God, it, it would change. It doesn't change God, but it, it changes the way we see that figure, yeah. The, the way I see it is that we're just too hung up in gender. We, because we can't picture a being without a gender, we fall back to our limits and struggle to cope with it on a yeah. gender level. Right. And, and I, see the, I see the conversation as a non-conversation mm -hmm. because we're attempting to fit a square peg into a round hole. It just will never, under any circumstances, work. And, and I, I see the same thing with the feminist move, movement, the, the race movement, and the fact that we want to keep hanging on to these labels. When I was, when I was little, um, my mother was the traditional mother and my father was the traditional father, except I was the oldest child and my father's a pragmatist. So when he, he needed help, his first son was born six years after I was. When he needed help working on the car, Terry, get down here. When he needed help building and putting up a wall, Terry, get over here. Right. And, and he treated me as an equal who could do anything. So I grew up to believe I was an equal who could do anything. I, I also learned early on that men would dismiss women because they couldn't do the men's things, but that if you did the men's things without the women's things, you had issues. So I resolved from a very young, lady, young age to do all the men things and all the women things excellently and just be transcendent. And, and I, I think we spend so much time dialoguing about what to call it when we should just live it. Oh, I, I believe you're right. On, on the other hand, there are real-world consequences to a gendered mythos. And there are times that, not times, the system is set up to be unfair to women. It is worldwide. Um, if, we, if you know anything about Jimmy Carter, the latest thing he's getting into is the fact that so many women right now are being abducted and abused planet-wide. Uh, women are not getting educated planet-wide. So to me, yes, 
I want to live differently. And I do live differently. I don't identify myself in very gendered ways. And, and I think that's the way you solve it. But on the other hand, we have to address these things because they create imbalances. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but I think it's best done not philosophically, although I am a philosopher. I think it's best done not philosophically, but by... I think it's best done not philosophically, but by speaking up strongly whenever you see it around you. Exactly. Okay, for instance... It's just live it. You know? I, was in, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I visited a, one of those super churches. 10,000 people, all educated, uh, mostly white. Uh, we're talking some women there, lawyers, powerful figures, right? So we're not, this is not a traditional environment. And they, in this age, based on scripture, said that women could not be deacons in their church. And I walked out because I thought, you looked at one passage in Timothy that says a deacon should be the husband of one wife, the point of that being that he shouldn't marry two women, not that, you know, or that he, he should, should be, be married, yeah. not that he should be a man. I thought, even that progressive in our environment, no one else stood up and walked out. I was kind of astounded, and I could not see the logic in what he was saying. So to me, the church has a job to do. And it's been done, I think the Presbyterians have handled it pretty well. I have good experience with Presbyterian church. My children grew up in a Presbyterian church. I'm divorced, so you know we went different places, but they grew up in a Presbyterian church. And I love that church, I visited it all the time. So to me, I absolutely agree with you. The only way we change it is to live differently. But I still think we have to stand up for, and I think the church has to stand up for the rights of women worldwide. And you can't hide behind some of these scriptures that. Well, well, the fact that they're being the abducted and abused is because they're women and men want sex. But, um, but it's no different than an abduction of a man for whatever purpose. I mean, it's, it's the crime that's the heinous thing and the sex Again, still I is agree. I just, moderately I th irrelevant. I think a lot of the, the crimes against women, they'll come from antiquated ideas about who women are and what they're supposed to do. Right, because people just don't want to take the time to really study the Bible. They don't. And, and once again, if we focus on God, we focus on his word, everything else That's falls into point. place. We've got some interpreting to do. Okay. Well, you don't have to if I'm talking about a he or a she, but if I'm talking about something in between, I'm all for the they. All for what? All for they. But you can't refer to God as they. No. <laughs> you could. For God, I would just say the word God. And for, uh, you know, if I'm going to say everyone should bring their notebook, officially I should say his or her, but why don't I just say their? There's no law in linguistics that we can't use a plural word for that. All right. That's how it all starts. <laughs>